0: Hi, I'm a higher ed CMO and I have a confession to make. This episode, I'm engaging in nepotism. My husband, Dave, happens to also be a higher education marketer who has been working in higher education marketing since 2008. And people often ask me, What is it like to be married to someone who works in the exact same industry that you work in? And honestly, in a lot of ways, it's really great because we can have really great conversations about marketing in marketing higher education with each other pretty much anytime we want, which is kind of like having a colleague all the time. Obviously, pros and cons to that, but we're only going to talk about the pros today. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Dave, where we're going to talk about marketing online programs. Welcome to Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, the podcast designed for higher education marketers. I'm your host, Jamie Hunt, and I am so excited to have this opportunity to share insights and inspiration. With Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, I'm designing a different kind of podcasting experience. With each episode, I'll be bringing in a guest for a deep dive into the challenges and joys we all face in higher education marketing. After each episode, you can join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag HigherEdCMO. I would love to see this become like a book club, but for a podcast. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at, at JamieHuntIMC. That's J A I M E H U N T I M C for more opportunities to connect. I'm super happy to be here today with the poor sap that is married to me, but who also happens to be a higher ed marketer and has been for a long time. Dave, how are you?
1: I'm good, Jamie. How are you?
0: I am great. Better now that I'm in recording this podcast. Thank you, Dave, for being willing to come on the show. I have wanted to have you on the show for a little while, but I didn't want it to seem like, "Hey, nepotism." Dave is not a nepo baby. (laughs) Dave is like a semi nepo baby. I don't know. I was going to say. I
1: mean, (laughs) we'll see how we'll see how this goes, and then people can draw their own conclusion at the end. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Exactly. So, Dave, I'm I'm happy to have you on here. You are the creative director at ODU Global which is the online version of Old Dominion University. Can you tell us a little bit about your higher ed journey? Sure.
1: Uh, So my first job in higher ed was working as a graphic designer in a central marketing office at a small private university in Wisconsin. And I did that while I was finishing my bachelor's degree as an adult student in a degree completion program. But since I was in my teens, i had been interested in both writing and design, which is kind of weird, but this was my first sort of foray into higher ed and my first real dedicated design job. From there, I went to Virginia Tech and I led communications for alumni relations. So kind of the opposite side of enrollment. I oversaw website migration, got my first experience supervising full-time staff and became kind of the point person at the university for email marketing. Then after that, I worked at the Wake Forest School of Business back in a design position that also saw me serving as editor of the magazine and working with web and enrollment marketing staff. And then I went to Miami University, where I was director of strategic digital marketing. It's kind of interesting. I was housed in academic affairs, reporting directly to the provost. And then last year, I started working at ODU Global. I was hired as the director of digital marketing, and now I've assumed the role of creative director. So I have a team of people who do content design, web project management, all that kind of stuff. And we're hoping to add some more positions yet this fall.
0: So what do you oversee in ODU Global?
1: So it's, I have designers, I have, uh, so design and brand. I have a web person and we're looking to add uh, additional web people, project management. We just hired a content manager. I'm getting a social media manager position as well. So kind of building out that, integrated marketing area, essentially.
0: That's awesome. And people often ask me when they find out that you also work in higher ed marketing, how does that work? Do we just talk about marketing all day? And like, kind (laughs) of, that's (laughs) kind of the case. I mean, it's nice to have somebody who's interested in the same types of things that I'm interested in at home.
1: It is. I think it's challenging sometimes because we both know the same people we both know similar situations although we are I think that we're not quite as in the same circles quite as much with the situation at Old Dominion right now at Miami it felt like we were a little more closely connected and with you know being in a lot more meetings together and things like that so it's a little more separated here but it's hard to not talk about work when you're both in the same field when you get home at the end of the day and
0: yeah um, for sure well, what he's not telling you is that when we were at Miami, his office was what like twenty feet from my office, so it was yeah, sort of yeah. yeah, like we were we worked very close together and we're in meetings together almost every week. And I think we've only been in like maybe one meeting together here at Old Dominion. So in your past couple of roles, you have been marketing online programs, but before that, when you were at Wake Forest, um, you marketed more on-campus programs. And I'm guessing that there's big differences between the two. How do you approach marketing online programs differently from on-campus programs?
1: Yeah, the the online space is certainly competitive and expensive. I think on the one hand, online should mean that you can geographically expand your student population, right? and And start raking in that out-of-state tuition that we're all after. But now you're also competing with every other university trying to do the same thing. And many universities are primarily regional draws, even though they tend to think of themselves as as being bigger than that. You know, you get two students from California and suddenly think that you're a national university. And that may not be the case when you're looking at your actual brand reputation. And then once you go online, there's these behemoths in the space to have to worry about, you know, Western governors and Purdue Global and SH- NSNHU and all those. So I think it's important to also not lose sight of your home market. at Miami, our closest large DMA was Cincinnati, and Cincinnati was becoming a growth market that a lot of institutions outside the region were looking at. And you don't want to get into a position where now you're losing students at home because you're trying to look outside your state borders. But grad was my main area of focus for the last seven years of my career. And I saw I saw data from a company called RNL. They do some really good research that only about a quarter of students have in their head where they're going to get their their grad degree so unless you screw something up or do something to put a really bad taste in their mouth you're going to get those students but that still leaves 75 percent of your students that you're having to convince to come to your institution and they also found that about 75 percent of grad students are all applying to more than one university And roughly 80% of those students all end up attending the first university that admits them. So as I was really getting deeper into this space and doing all this research, and it was to me this major realization that marketing is great, but if there are gaps, for example, in the admissions process, marketing is going to bring in leads and they're going to fall through the cracks. So that was something I mean, and this is probably true of. You know, whether you're online or in person, but with online moving so fast and being so expensive, there was a point in my career where I was actually telling us, you know, I had money that I could have asked to increase and I didn't because I was concerned we were not going to get the best ROI out of it because we had these other kind of holes. So getting all the stakeholders together, getting that full process thought through and making sure that you're optimizing on all that, I think is absolutely critical for online.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. When I think about the efforts that I put in at a previous institution to get apps, so we had apps go up by like 50%. So I watched as applications would come in, but then they would just sit in a queue for literally months. And then by the time the faculty took action on the apps, they'd already, to your point, been accepted somewhere else and were like, Well, it's too late now. And so we didn't see the enrollment grow by anywhere near the amount that we were anticipating because of the apps. And I had to bring to folks' attention, like, guys, you can't sit for months on an application for a grad program and assuredly not an online grad program. Because one of my colleagues there had worked at a for-profit school who said that their average turnaround time for returning a phone call on an inquiry was like seven or eight minutes. So if you submitted an inquiry form, you were getting a call that fast. And application acceptance was like less than an hour. From the time you submitted an app, you were getting an acceptance.
1: It's walkers. Yeah, bonkers. yeah. It, there's so much pressure to, to turn that around. I mean, we had that, I probably shouldn't say the institution. I, I definitely won't say the program. But a program came to me and said, you know, we want to increase our enrollment, not by a huge number, but. We're getting like a hundred applications, and we're only admitting like twenty-five students at the end. And it's like, okay, well, do they are seventy-five percent of them not qualified? No, because uh, it turned out they sat on apps for three or four months. And even if you were the top choice, if you're starting to get applications accepted from three other institutions, are you going to hold out? And well, maybe I'll still get into there. Or are you going to start saying yes to the people that are actually engaging with you and responding? So it's tough. But that, that turned into a conversation on, okay, well, yeah, actually, now that makes sense. We're going to go and fix our process, and then we'll come back in a year and see if we still meet you.
0: Hey, all I hope you're enjoying this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO. I want to take a moment to thank my friends at MindPower, who are making Season 2 of this Envolify podcast possible. Mindpower is a full-service marketing and branding firm celebrating nearly 30 years of needle-moving, thought-provoking, research-fueled creative and strategy. Mindpower is woman-founded and owned, WBENC certified, nationally recognized, and serves the social sector, higher education, healthcare, nonprofits, and more. The Mindpower team is made up of strategists, storytellers, and experienced creators. From market research to brand campaigns, to recruitment, to fundraising, the agency exists to empower clients, amplify brands, and help institutions find a strategic way forward. You can learn more about their work in the world by heading on over to MindPower, Inc. That's M-I-N-D-P-O-W-E-R-I-N-C dot And be sure to tell the crew that Jamie sent you their way. Yeah, that's, it's a good point. Because oh, I think with undergrad, you expect that there's application deadlines. And that you're going to have your um, application reviewed after the overall deadline. Now, we do it a little bit differently here at ODU. I think we start doing it more roll- on a rolling basis. But that's the, this is the first place that that's really been the case. Otherwise, it's like if you apply by the early action deadline of December 1, you're expecting you're going to hear sometime in January if you got in. And sometimes, a couple years, we were able to get those out over winter break. That like, while the students were home on winter break, they were getting their packages. And then when you go to the regular app deadline of Feb 1, you anticipate you're going to hear sometime in March, and that would generally be the case. But I think with the competition for grad and online, it's just not the same world at all.
1: No, and there's so many different times that grad programs could theoretically start if they have multiple starts in the year. And Different programs may start in the fall, but have different application deadlines where that, you know, like some will review applications until a couple weeks before classes start and some have a cutoff two or three months before or in, back in the spring. There's not that same sort of standardized expectation, I think, for grad students that there is for somebody who's like a high school junior or senior or whatever when they're going through that process.
0: Yeah, for sure. When we were at Miami, we were both on that Miami University academic program incubator, which we called MAPI, which I kind of love. And that program really was looking at when faculty were proposing programs, we were looking at that from a marketing perspective to see, is there a market for this program? Is this going to be a program that's excessively expensive to try to market? What recommendations can we make around the naming of the program? All of that. I'm curious about why you think that might be important for marketers to be involved in that level of program planning.
1: Yeah, I, I think the program incubator was one of the brilliant things that Miami put in place. Pulling in people from across the university. We had people from the graduate school and academic affairs and budget and finance people and the registrar and, and marketing folks like you and I. And our decisions were advisory and non-binding, but we had enough senior leadership from the university represented in that group that the recommendations would at least be taken seriously, I felt. But I I think, you know, only a a small number of programs were really advised to not proceed at all. Usually it was giving them feedback and, and input to help. But... You know, I don't have expertise in developing curriculum and hiring faculty to teach a program. I don't have experience dealing with the budgetary decisions around hiring and program development. I don't have experience moving programs through state approval. Why would we expect people who have deep expertise in those areas to have deep understanding of marketing? So, I think pulling all those people with all those different areas of expertise together was really great. And then from a purely marketing standpoint, I think starting the conversation as early as possible about how you're going to position and market a program is incredibly helpful. Like getting an understanding of enrollment trends nationally and regionally for the type of program you're considering, looking at IPEDS data and Department of Labor statistics and all those kinds of things, whether you do that internally or with the help of a partner. And then you can start poking at a lot of the standard marketing questions. Who's the audience for this program? What's unique about it? Are we doing something different? Um, What are the careers and jobs someone can get? And if it's a grad program, what are the undergrad feeder programs for this degree? Do we have those programs at this institution? If we attract those students, will they be enough to get this program off the ground in its first year? If not, where are those students going to be coming from? Is this program in an area where we have expertise and reputation or is this a complete left field stretch for us as an institution? You know, and then how quickly, you know, you start asking questions, how quickly are we going to get this program? What's feasible for this to become financially stable and revenue generating? And that incubator bringing all of us together, I think, was just a really helpful way to start addressing those questions early instead of you know, we've got this new program, it's been approved by the state, it's enrolling, and sometimes we would get approvals, you know, in like spring for the fall, and we've got six months, and this is the first time marketing is hearing about this program. Stand up a website, get as much digital marketing in place, get your PPC going, and hope to God that we can pull in, you know, 12 students so that this program can launch in the fall. And MAPI was such a better way to think about that over the course of a year or two instead of panicked at the last minute.
0: Absolutely. I can't even tell you over the last 19 years of my career how many times I found out about a new program being approved and even just existing at the point of that approval and having it be like, hey, we just got approval. It's May. We want to have students for fall. And you're just like, I mean, that's
1: a bad yeah. conversation, <laughs>
0: yeah. like, well, and then too often you ask what the budget is, and they look at you just blankly,
1: right. The budget is whatever <laughs> I have to spend on it, not <laughs> they're right. not coming with anything
0: <laughs> right. I just i it blows my mind how often that gets left off the table, and I think Mappy was sort of created b- due to a number of different things, but among them, I think was me being like, y'all, if you build it. That doesn't mean they're going to come if we don't advertise it and if we don't market it because, you know, they brought up all these programs before we arrived and there weren't really any budgets to market. And it was like, well, we hired Dave, like, right. But Dave's not (laughs) going to go, like, personally call every prospective student in the country and invite them to apply. (laughs)
1: Like,
0: Dave has to have some resources to do that.
1: It's one-to-one marketing. (laughs) Right.
0: So yeah, I mean, marketing, online programs, graduate programs, all programs, it definitely requires a lot more resources than I think sometimes faculty and deans really think about. But speaking of faculty and deans, online marketing usually involves collaborating with academic departments because you're marketing programs versus with undergrad, you might be marketing just to a broad range of high school sophomores, juniors, seniors, whatever, with online programs, you're doing programmatic marketing. So how do you approach working with faculty and program leaders, knowing that they might not have a ton of marketing expertise, but they're keenly interested in their program being successful?
1: Yeah, absolutely. When I started at Miami, the first thing the provost had me do was meet with all the deans which if you're in a position to do that, I think that can be useful to hear from those senior academic leaders about their vision and concerns and also maybe what they're buy- what where they have buy-in and where they don't. That can be interesting and instructive, some of the reading between the lines things. But when you're meeting with the programs, I think level setting is a big part of what you have to solve. What resources can you offer and bring to bear? What's going to be outside the scope of what you can Provide. I've met with program leaders who are optimistic and excited and just grateful that finally somebody is going to talk to me about how to market my program and they're excited to partner and ready to go. And then I've also had those first program meetings where I don't know these people, but they're already contentious. Like, what is going on? Like, there's some sort of prior history and I don't know what I'm walking into. Like, they felt like they were promised something in the past and didn't receive it, or they had ideas that weren't listened to or rejected or whatever. And when you go into that, I think. Having some idea of what you can actually do and being careful about what you promise and then delivering on those things. And that starts to get into just how you build trust and goodwill with anybody in a professional relationship. Helping them see that you're on their side, that you value their thoughts and want to partner with them. And really partner with them because they absolutely have knowledge you need. They know the programs. They know the students best. I've worked with a lot of business programs in my career, but I don't have as much expertise with something like engineering. So they're going to know who their student is. They're going to know some niche ways to reach those students potentially if there are industry publications and associations and things like that. So, I mean, like anything else, I think it's about building a good partnership, but I have had to diffuse situations sometimes unexpectedly. But, the, you know, the goal is like, okay, well, even if this gets off to a rocky start, you know, we're going to stay in communication. We're going to give each other updates. We're going to look at content together. Your voice is going to be heard. Like, and and it's really establishing that partnership and then trying to keep communication open throughout the recruitment cycle. And then, you know, doing debriefs at the end and all that kind of stuff.
0: I have found, and I think based on and some of the experiences you've shared with me in the past, I've found that a lot of times program directors have been sort of Passed along, or they're not. Nobody paid attention to them when their program was in its infancy, or their program's struggling, but their dean is cutting their marketing budget instead of expanding it, or fill in the blank here. And a lot of times, I think you go into those first meetings as a therapist, almost. Yeah. Like, yes. tell me about your challenges. <laughs> tell right. me about the, the needs that haven't been met. And usually, you can kind of form a relationship after that, but. Yeah, that could be a lot of times they're dealing with situations where they haven't been given the resources to market their program, but they're told to recruit. And it's difficult to recruit without marketing.
1: Yeah. And again, like just having somebody like they they're passionate about these programs, you know, like if you can get them talking and. See that, you know, get so that you they are seeing you as an, an ally for their for their program, and also somebody who's going to actually do something for them. And, you know, again, like you don't want to over promise and, and under deliver, you know, it's better to do the opposite of those. I've had programs where you go in and they know, like, you should be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to make this work. And I've had programs where it's like, you tell them you can spend $5,000 on some industry conference where they would love to have a $5,000 sponsorship. And it's like their eyes light up and it's Christmas for them and their program. And that's all it takes, you know? So it it depends, of course, on the program and, and what it is. But I think building partnerships and relationships, and like you're saying, Allowing that first conversation to be a therapy session if it needs to be is is probably okay, you know
0: I think that's what like I tend to be a good listener, so I think yeah. that's sort of how many of my meetings are like we scheduled for forty five minutes and an hour and a half later, I'm kind of still you know giving you emotional support for right. all the or being the heard, things that you, you know, yeah, they
1: leave like feeling like they've been heard, and it's probably nice as a faculty person who's like normally having to talk to people all day like. You know, this was the meeting that I had where people actually listened to me and now they're going to help me. I mean, who doesn't want that, you know?
0: Well, I, I was thinking as you were talking that marketing programmatically and marketing graduate programs programmatically and undergraduate, you're really talking about situations where each one is different. And so you can't have the exact same approach to marketing each one. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think some of it gets to, I mean, I, I am a a believer that ultimately best case scenario, you know, your marketing budget should be tied to revenue and different programs are going to have different revenue capacity and how much money you can spend. I mean, I think, you know, everybody looks at PPC when you start talking about digital marketing, like that's something that had, tends to have decent ROI. And, you know, th- there's kind of the like default list of things but like LinkedIn is huge for grad like I don't know that you would use it for undergrad unless you're doing like degree completion programs and and going after an adult audience and then the more niche that program is you know we had like an advanced manufacturing certificate at Miami and it was like I don't know anything about this but they had you know industry things and and stuff like that so GIS geographic information systems, like that was another one where these things that are kind of real technical, you're probably not going to go spend $100,000 on that program, but you might only need to spend five or $10,000 doing some really targeted things versus something like marketing an online MBA, like buckle up for the dollar signs, you know, like it's going to be a full court press on everything. So yeah, I don't, I don't think that you can treat them all exactly the same.
0: Let's talk about MBA. You brought up sort of the elephant in the room. I think (laughs) just about every school has an MBA, right? Um, A lot of schools have online MBAs or MBAs designed to attract um, adult learners who have jobs. And marketing MBAs, to me, that's almost like a specialized discipline in a way because of the competition. But how do you approach marketing and MBA or how have you in the past? I know Wake Forest had an MBA that you were involved with and Miami did as well.
1: Yeah. And, and Wake has done a lot of things since I left that I, that I, you know, I was not a part of. So there's, there's only so much that I can speak to there that they, I don't think they had launched the online MBA yet before I left. I think it's hard. You kind of have to have something to identify and hang your hat on. There are some MBA programs. There, there's one that I'm aware of that has like 14 concentrations or specialties. So, one way you can make yourself unique is to have a ton of those and really let people customize. There's another institution, and this one I'm not being cagey. I can't honestly remember. I want to say that they're somewhere in the West Coast, but they have no uh, core classes you can every single thing about that and they have some ridiculous number of like i don't know over a hundred courses i think that you can pick from and you f- can fully customize your mba there are people who are there are institutions that are doing one-year mbas now so you're competing on speed they're right speed and convenience at miami one of the things that they were moving towards as we were leaving was getting it so that you could add a, a on a class by class basis, you could choose between being online or in person. So if you wanted to be online, but you were really worried about that accounting class, you could do that in person if you wanted to. And you were you know, able to get to the place where that was physically held. So I think it's hard if you don't have something to compete on. If you don't like corporate partnerships, become a big deal with business programs and MBA. You know, having industry partners that can potentially, you know, they have big companies that have tuition reimbursements for their students can start to feed your MBA program. And all these numbers, I mean, if a five, 10 students maybe is all you're getting, but five, 10 students is a significant thing to start to be able to kind of count on for any program. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's really hard if you can't point to why somebody would do the program with you. There's going to be that student who only cares about rankings. And if you're not a nationally ranked university, they're, you're, they're not going to be your student. So that's going to pull people right out. Not every institution is going to be able to compete on price, but some can. So if that's you, that's great. If you're a middle of the road MBA with nothing special about it, nothing to tout, you know, you're gonna get that 25% of people who, for some reason, have affinity for you, got your their undergrad degree with you, and want to continue. You're close; they know you, whatever. But I think it's hard to really, really grow and have wide scale, like massive growth, if you're not doing something interesting and innovative that you can really hang a hat on in that space.
0: That's so true in my experience. When I was at Winston-Salem State, we had an MBA that was offered nights. And it was basically you took class two nights a week for two years and you got an MBA. So we marked it as two nights, two years, one MBA. But we also played heavily into the fact that in the 30-mile radius or whatever that, that a working adult might be, we were by far the least expensive MBA at Wake, Wake Forest, where you were, was right down the road. And we were very boldly being like, yeah, theirs costs $100,000. Ours costs 16. Even UNC Greensboro was much higher than us. We added in UNC Chapel Hill's executive MBA, which I think is around $100,000. But you mentioned like five or 10 students, maybe not seeming like a munch, but if your MBA is $100,000, that's... That's a lot of money. Five students is a half a million dollars. Ten is a million. On the flip side of that, if you miss your goal by five or ten students, you're missing with real money, too. It's just such a competitive space.
1: Yeah, and and I think, I mean, the people who are expensive, I mean, most of the people who are expensive in the space have some kind of national rankings. A big part of the MBA is the network that you can build by doing that MBA. So... You know, Winston-Salem State can compete on the price and win on the price, hands down. Wake can say, yeah, we're more expensive, but you will get, you know, these amazing industry opportunities and we have national recruiters coming to our programs and and all these kinds of things. So, I mean, there's space for all of those, but those are two examples that they have positioned themselves. I think the problem is if you haven't done any positioning work. On any program, but on the MBA, man, it's really hard to say we're going to spend money marketing this and we don't have a clear position for that program in the market.
0: Yeah, you just had the key word right there, positioning. Like that's when when you meet with the program directors and you're asking them what makes you distinct and they start to rattle off things that every MBA has. It's like, that's not that's not a distinction.
1: Our faculty care. And we value our students and yeah.
0: Right. You get an excellent education
1: from a dedicated
0: (laughs) faculty in a caring environment. Please tell me what school is going to be like. You get a half-assed education. Right, right. We don't care
1: about students here.
0: (laughs) From faculty (laughs) who just don't care about you.
1: Washed out faculty (laughs) who stopped caring 20 years ago.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like the bar needs to be a little higher than (laughs) the faculty care about their job. Like, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and as long as we're talking about the MBA, I think this probably applies to a lot of um, programs as well. But there's a decision-making process that isn't, I decided today I'm going to go back to school and tomorrow I'm applying and Thursday or whatever, I'm enrolling and starting classes. I mean, that does happen, but I don't think that's the norm. I think the norm is probably a much longer decision-making process How do you nurture the leads that you get over time and guide them through that whole journey for online programs?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And you're right. Uh, A couple of years ago, LinkedIn reported that the average grad student spends over 500 days considering their options before applying to grad school. And 70% of prospective grad schools who are not properly nurtured choose a different institution. So there is pressure to do that. And I mean, I would love to hear the easy answers and the silver bullets. It ultimately comes down to having to do a lot of work on a lot of things. (laughs) Content marketing can play a big role. Establishing extended drip campaigns and figuring out what the process is. When somebody fills out an RFI, how long do you chase them? At what frequency? With what channels? Using what messages? Can you offer virtual info sessions? Do you have... Do you have the internal staff or an external partner that allows you to be as responsive as those prospective students are going to expect? And what's the right level of aggressive for them and for your institution? Some institu- online institutions will actually start to fill out an application for a prospective student if they get them talking on the phone. So they're not even start having to start the app. They might have to go in and finish it and if there's transcripts involved and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, that that's a huge you're lifting a huge barrier for them or you're a hurdle, but you're also being quite aggressive. So, you know, what's your comfort level for that? And, and are you willing to do that? Or does that person in, in many cases at many institutions, that's got to go through a graduate director who's trying to shape a program and all that kind of stuff. So there's all that. Then there's all the evergreen things to worry about. Is your website amazing? Um, can you build in website personalization through a customer data platform so students get targeted web content um, you know, based on if they've engaged with your ad or what stage they're in in the enrollment funnel? Do you have fast loading, purposefully built landing pages for every single campaign that you're doing? Are you transparent about the information that a student is looking for? Are you hiding tuition? Are you you know, some of those kinds of things. I don't know. I mean, you think a lot about how we reach out to students with chatbots and phone calls and text and email and all these kinds of things. But I mean, there's also stealth apps. How many of those are you getting? How are you serving them? I think from a campaign standpoint, having a strong brand, and that's a whole other topic. But I mean, if that helps, making sure that you're doing upper, upper funnel tactics, putting out stuff that's inspirational and aspirational and that kind of stuff, testimonials from students and alumni so that not all of your content is hyper-transactional. Because I think you know it's great when you have those students, but if they're not at a stage to take action yet, what does that content look like for them? You know, If they're not ready to apply and they're not going to be ready, they're at day 10 of a 500-day journey, telling them 400 more times to apply today You know, like you need to think about some other ways to do the messaging and other ways to be building your brand that they could potentially interact with to make it feel less like they're getting just, you know, asked to buy something at that point.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's something super annoying about continually hearing from a place every single day when you're not even remotely close to making a decision about it. Like maybe you're like, I'm just curious. I just want to learn a little bit more about this academic program, and so I'm going to submit this RFI. And then the next thing you know, your inbox is like, you ha- spam- full of spam. What feels like spam because you weren't ready yet. But at the same time, like you don't want to fall off of people's radar. So this is a very delicate dance. I I think I when I started grad school, I requested information from a couple of different schools, and one of them was sending me information after I had graduated from the other program. And it took me two and a half years to get my master's degree. So I finally emailed them and was like, I actually earned my master's degree somewhere else. You can probably stop emailing me. But it was, you know, it wasn't every day after the first probably 500 days. <laughs> but <laughs> once we hit like day, you know, 700, they started sending them every 10 days or something. But
1: Well, I, yeah, I've I've seen situations where in lieu of having the content marketing in place, And the sophisticated, the more sophisticated, the even slightly sophisticated drip campaigns, what's happening is every 10 days, the institution is just resending the exact same email. And that the the calm plan is that happens for like 100 days and then we stop. And, you know, and so, I mean, at least at least they had a stop. It sounds like that institution didn't even have a stop built in. It was just like, nope. Until as long as this email address is in existence, we will be counting you as a lead
0: Poor Google is like this woman's inbox is just emails from and I don't want to say the name of the school because no. I actually have a friend that works there.
1: <laughs> oh no <Yeah. laughs>
0: I, I, I didn't know him before you know back when this was happening, but I don't want to like call out his school. But <laughs> I wonder how many Google inboxes and Yahoo inboxes and whatever are like <laughs> halfway full with just emails from universities
1: well that promote i mean i i use gmail for my personal email and i have the promotion section turned on largely for reasons like that you know you you do business once or you ask for information once on whatever it is and and now suddenly you're going to get forever spammed unless you remember to tell them please stop and that's a hassle too
0: I sign up for like, oh, this newsletter, it's going to be great. And then I open like once a year the newsletter. <laughs> and my right. inbox is full of them. But talking about tactics, you know, we've talked a little bit about like drip campaigns and all of that. You know, do you, how do you do like the digital marketing piece? I know you talked about PPC, but are you also doing, you know, other tactics in the digital space for online programs?
1: Yeah, I mean digital mar. Yeah, I mean digital marketing is is a broad topic. PPC is kind of the low, one of the lowest hanging fruits, <laughs> getting keywords and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean SEO is a big part of that. I think I'm very interested to see what's happening or what's going to happen with SEO with now that we have all this generative AI stuff happening, and Google is looking at completely changing its search interface and search results. There's a Google search labs that's um, available now that you can access that shows you what it's going to look like. Where it's you're Googling something and it's instead of giving you links to things, it's giving you actual answers in the search pane. And there are still links. And and it's funny because Google is trying to tell you that, you know, we're still serving ads, people are still going to click on things, but we're also giving them a lot of content front and center. So SEO is a big part of the puzzle. I mean, social. You know, Facebook and Instagram are still things. TikTok is, you know, that whole legality and whether or not you can use it from state to state and federally and all that kind of stuff. So TikTok is not something I've ever done anything with. Every time I've gotten close to the cusp, some, you know, the state that I'm in makes some sort of rule and everybody gets gun shy and we stop. But Facebook and Instagram are still things. LinkedIn is a huge thing and there's different ways to use LinkedIn. There's in-mail and there's sponsored content and... There's some other things that they've got and from program to program, some of these things, you know, there's some of these things are going to be effective and not. And so monitoring all of that, you know, there's the display ads, you know, the the little banner ads that you can click on and things like that. And it's been interesting. I think, I think it probably speaks to the need to have a lot of these tactics when you have the budget to do multiple tactics because, like at Miami, we were watching. I mean, and we watch it now too at ODU. But from month to month, different things will outperform, you know, differently based on program, based on, you know, seemingly randomness. You know, like this month LinkedIn won, and last month Facebook would gave us the most leads that converted. And and it's hard to see patterns. I think if you see stuff that never converts, you know, every once in a while there's stuff like. I feel like we were able to kind of identify a few programs where it was like LinkedIn or, you know, LinkedIn was super effective. Facebook, not so much. I feel like with, you know, sometimes with like the MBA, LinkedIn is is critical, but some of like Instagram, maybe not as critical. So yeah, I mean, there again, it kind of gets to what we were talking about. Like there's not a one size fits all, but I think you have to consider all those different channels as your budget allows you to.
0: Speaking of budget, that that segues me really nicely to my next question, which is, and this is one I get a lot, and I actually refer a lot of people to Dave when they ask to pick my brain on this topic, but if a higher ed marketer was asked to establish a budget for marketing a new online program, what would you recommend?
1: I'll, I'll start by stealing from somebody else who I think is brilliant. Back in July, Seth O'Dell... I knew it
0: was going to be Seth O'Dell.
1: Seth's amazing.
0: He is. He's brilliant.
1: Yes. He tweeted that the ballpark minimum you should invest to support a new program is $150,000. And that was assuming four program starts, 12 students per start, at a cost of about $3,000 per student per start. But he also said that's best case scenario, assuming that you're talking about an in-demand program that's tightly aligned with your university's existing organic interest and there's a reasonable demand for the program but only modest existing supply so that's a lot of best case scenarios there <laughs> and he admits that and i don't think that i don't think that there's a cut and dry answer to it and i don't think that that's really what he's advocating either revenue is a big factor in determining what's sustainable for the long term deloitte had a study a few years ago about higher ed marketing budgets related to revenue. And they were saying that across all industries, marketing budgets tend to be in that eight to 10% projected revenue, but then higher ed tends to run higher, more like 10 to 12. And then online programs tend to run even higher, more like 15. And then you get into really competitive spaces like an MBA and that gets to 20, 25, maybe more. So if your tuition is high, and you have a healthy program in an area that your institution is known or or even ranked for, and it's not a highly competitive program, and you can do some really niche marketing that you maybe haven't tried before, then new marketing might go new marketing money might go really far. But that's an awful lot of ifs, which which I think does kind of get to that. And that kind of circles back to to Mappy a little bit too. I mean, I I had a a conversation with the provost once where I was like, I mean, basically, you know, he's like, we're, you're saying that we basically have to have a six figure budget to launch a program, and it's like, well, it depends on somewhat. It depends on what that program is, but essentially, as a default position, yeah, kind of. I mean, a certificate, you know, less, you know, a a program that. But that's, I mean, that's the other thing too, is like, what kind of programs are you launching? You shouldn't be launching a program if it's going to be a struggle to even get 10 students, right? So that gets into all the market research and the positioning, the program and all that kind of stuff too, to make sure that you're not launching something that is not going to ever really get off the ground. There's so much, there's so many things to figure out, you know, like, How comfortable are we with a program struggling? How long can it struggle? If it takes three or four years for this to get somewhere, but are we okay with that? Or does this need to be an immediate hit? You know, or is it just as long as we get enough students to have a class and run it? Is that okay for the first year? There's, there's so much to have to figure out. And then again, like your revenue, if you're at a, if you're at an expensive institution You know, like you should be able to spend $100,000 on a grad program that has serious potential to bring in some enrollment and thus revenue for the institution. But I've also read and and heard that for grad programs, you really should be planning your first year to be in the red just on marketing alone. Don't expect like whatever money you could have made the first year is going should be eaten up by marketing to get it established.
0: That is, That might be the takeaway for this episode is that I, and I want to double down on talking about how great Seth is. And I interviewed him on episode 17. And if you haven't listened to that yet, he talks a lot about recruiting non-traditional students, which he refers to as post-traditional students. And it's sort of a different take on the enrollment cliff and it's excellent content. He is brilliant and has been very generous with his time with me in the past. So kudos to to Seth O'Dell.
1: A hundred percent. He's a great follow on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it today. And his new his email newsletter, all that stuff. It's amazing to me that he puts out the, the richness of content that he does with the regularity that he does. Like it's just truth bomb after truth bomb. He is film. awesome.
0: He is so awesome. So here's the $100 million question, I guess. <laughs> So I know that if you look at just about any higher ed trade industry pub, if you talk to just about any other CMO, higher ed marketer, admission director in the country, the majority of them have had a president at some point think that spinning up an online program is going to be the magical bullet that's going to solve everything from that comes with the enrollment cliff. This is a very common, quote unquote, solution to a higher ed enrollment problem. And I feel really lucky that we are at an institution that has been in the online market for 40 years back when it was like VHS tapes that they were sending to folks. So we're not at it. I want to be clear. We're not at an institution like that now. But if a a college president was like, hey, Dave, I want to launch online programs for the first time we have never done these before we don't have any history we don't have any reputation doing them what would you tell her in that situation
1: i mean the easy joke is to say don't and then <laughs> right? and then play the clip of michael from the office screaming no no over <laughs> and over again <laughs>
0: And this is where we need our producer to somehow insert no, that clip no. into here, right? God,
1: but, no! Why? Right? Yeah. Sort
0: of like if you want to start up, well, if you want to make a million dollars in online marketing start out with a billion dollars yeah, or whatever yeah, right, that old right. that old thing is
1: yes yeah. i mean you probably can't be quite that flippant with your president so. <laughs> probably not um but
0: this is this is a mythical president you don't currently work for right if you're, you're able to just be well candid. now i'm
1: now i'm saying yeah. no because they're they're going to be competition um <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay fair
1: but no i i think the more serious and honest answer is I mean, you start by asking some really important questions and you hope and pray that they have really solid answers to them. Like what programs, what delivery mode do we have internal expertise to even develop the courses? Are we, are we going to have to partner with an OPM to pull this off? How soon, when is the first start? What are the actual enrollment goals for this? I mean, there's, there's so many questions that that would would spurn and and you would hope that you would pull together people like we had at at on that mappy uh uh body at miami to because that's it it's not just a marketing question it's it's course development and admissions and, and 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 but i i think I think one of the biggest challenges that I see in higher ed is lack of clarity around. Inst, the institution's market position and their vision for growth, and like the answer is often and again, I'll be quick to say, this has not been true at, at this is not true at at ODU and. I'm not thinking of any institutions that I've worked at in the past when I say this.
0: <laughs> Important disclaimer. So you still have references. Yeah, so I still need for- references
1: at the end of this podcast. But, you know, a lot of times the answer for what's the goal here, the answer is, well, bring in as many students as we can by spending as little as possible. Um, but who are your actual competitors? What are they doing to land students? Um, again, you know, how aggressive are they? How um, you know, are there overlaps in this the programs that the institution down the street is offering that we're now going to offer? Uh And if so, why are they going to do it with us? Are you trying to do this for programs where you're already ranked? Because that makes a difference. And in the online space, we've seen, you know, large players are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on marketing. So are you taking them on? And if you're not, who are you taking on? I mean, Deloitte published research this spring about how we may have already reached peak college enrollment in the united states like for the foreseeable future since 2020 undergraduate student enrollment has dropped by four percent and it's interesting like reading this study when when institutions were dealing with a population dip caused by gen x being a small generation in the 80s the enrollment gains were driven by women going to college in higher numbers than ever before but That has happened and has been solved. And now we have, you know, a a shortage of men going to college. But the underrepresented groups in higher education now are students of color and low income students. And they're much more likely to not start college or if they do start to drop out. So in the face of all this, just declaring that your institution's enrollment is going to grow 10% by going online without having some very specific ideas for how to make that happen is incredibly optimistic because you know we're reaching a point where any overall growth at an institution may be starting to buck trend lines which is frightening and and a massive adjustment i think for higher ed when historically we've always been thought you know like we know we're gonna at least be stable and there's probably at least some modest level of growth that you can expect but and so grad programs for a while became the thing that a lot of higher ed started focusing on to combat. It's going to combat the enrollment cliff. It's by extension also going to have at least some of those some of those degrees that don't really require work experience. They're they're going to have that cliff too. It's just going to be four years later. But that's become so crowded and competitive. And now adult students are the next hot focus. But I think that there. I think the adult student. There is something to that. I mean the. There's, I think the last thing I saw was there's around 39 million people in the U.S. who have completed or have started a degree but not completed, which works out to like one in five people over the age of 18. So that's a huge group if you can solve the challenges to reach them. And so one of the things that I might say to that president is like, well, here's this group that's sitting out there that everyone is going to jump to, they're starting to, but at least it's not quite as saturated as just, for lack of better terms, vanilla, standard grad. Can we shift this in some sort of way so we're at least going after, there's, you know, 39 million people here. Could we target some of those? Because we don't need very many of the 39 million to be successful. So that would be kind of, I guess, what I would say to try to provide some not, you know, again, jokingly, just don't do it. But um, (laughs) we're probably going to do it. So we need to be really intentional and thoughtful and have a plan and make sure that we're resourced and all those things. Or else we should not really try. I mean, because you can waste a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort. If it's going to be something that you ultimately bail on, or if you don't have the stomach for the Messy getting it off the ground phase, and you know, I mean, everything usually has that sort of awkward, frustrating. It's wobbling a little bit. Yeah, well, it's like there's a little bit of wobble before the before you get up to highway speed. You know, like do do you have the appetite as an institution to do that, or if you're just gonna dabble in in one sort of small way, maybe you maybe there's something if you have some sort of program where you know there's pent up demand for it and you know you'd get people. I think the problem with grad or the challenge with grad is if you haven't offered online before and you start offering online, I think you have to expect that you're going to start cannibalizing yourself some too.
0: Yeah, yeah. Especially, I think, if you're a rural rural university, you know? Like, I feel like I'm on the rural juror from 30 Rock. If you're a rural university, you have some of the challenge of, like, oh, well, I can do this online instead of having to make the commute to that campus or whatever. And I also think a lot of rural universities have some challenge with getting that some of their non-degree completers back if they don't have it fully delivered online. I have so many ideas for how to get those returners back that I've been talking with admission on my campus about tactics that we could do that basically I've been for the past like 15 years, just begging a university leader to listen to me on this. And so if you are a college president listening and you want to (laughs) listen to me on this, I mean, I think we're actually going to do some of these things here. There was a lot of great receptivity to them here, but you know, there's a lot you can do just with the pool of people who dropped out of your school. Like, those are people who already have an affinity for you. You have all their information. You don't need to request their transcripts because you have it. You know, I, I think if you're looking at folks that maybe have a $500 hold on their account for some sort of unpaid bill, and why are you not either waiving that or fundraising to get someone who gives dollars that allow you to waive that so that you can get somebody back. And it has the double benefit of now you have another enrollment, but you also have another graduate from your, your graduation rates. You know, I mean, it's not you're if you're trying to capture somebody in that six years to get within that six year graduation rate, you, you have to act pretty fast, but you know, there's opportunity there. And I just think, That not enough schools are capitalizing on the non completers.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good point, too, because that number of people who have some college but haven't finished has been growing. And even by starting with identifying some ways that you can reduce that happening at your institution, you know, like you're saying, like if there's some sort of compared to the cost of tuition, compared to the hit to your student completion rate, all those, all those things, if there's a way for you to forgive a few hundred bucks for somebody and that means they're going to go on to graduate, I mean, let them finish at your institution instead of 10 years from now finishing somewhere else and having a, you know...
0: Western governors or whatever. Right,
1: right, exactly.
0: I, I think there's just so much low-hanging fruit there that we're leaving on the table. I think I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors there, but you know what I mean.
1: (laughs) There's fruit, there was a table. (laughs) Right.
0: Well, Dave, this has been a great conversation to our listeners. This is sort of what like hanging out with us on a walk in the evening is like, <laughs> we end up talking about higher ed marketing and getting on our respective soapboxes about it. So I
1: don't usually have notes when we go for walks, but I did have <laughs> some should. notes today, but right, maybe I should.
0: <laughs> right. I don't prep you for the kind of crazy questions I asked. At least they're all normal today. I didn't ask you like, hey, why do you think squirrels have white bellies or something equally ridiculous? which at one point I kept a log of the crazy questions I asked Dave while I was like barely, just barely falling asleep. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so it's been great having you on the show and having you talk through some of your thoughts on this. If people want to pick your brain, where can they find you?
1: I have become increasingly a social media hermit, but I I am on LinkedIn. I'm David Hunt on LinkedIn, and I'm at ODU Global, Old Dominion University, so... Among the many David Hunts, that's the best way to find me. And I'm always happy to reach out and have a chat or, you know, text or, or hop on a call even. I've done that for some, some colleagues and, and new friends. It's nice to share information and help each other out. And, um, higher ed is such a big thing that uh, there's so many pieces to solve that, you know, I've benefited from others sharing expertise. So I'm happy to do the same when I can.
0: I was, chatting with our friend, Jamie Seaman, who's at Chapman University, and who appeared on episode five of this podcast. And you should not read anything into the fact that Jamie got on this podcast before (laughs) you did, Um, you know.
1: Well, again, Nepo baby, I feel like you had to wait till you were like several dozen episodes in before you hauled me out.
0: I had to wait to have Jamie Seaman on until episode five. So people didn't think I was doing like Jamie nepotism. Like, <laughs> I, I only interview Jamie's, but anyways, she and I were talking about how whenever somebody from the industry reaches out to us to to pick our brains or to have a chat or to ask us to do something, we're always responsive because that's what we would like to see, you know, for us, but it's also helping the profession as a whole, so I think that's really important. And so with that said, you can find me. I'm still on X, though using it way less. I'm just really struggling with giving it up because I've built such a great community there. But you can find me there, Jamie Hunt, I-M-C, J-A-I-M-E, H-U-N-T-I-M-C. You can find me on LinkedIn, same spelling of Jamie. And you can also, of course, find me on my website, the Higher Ed CMO. Um, Enrollify has all kinds of you know, places where I am. So look forward to seeing you there. And as always, you can use the hashtag HigherEdCMO to have some conversation about this episode. And Dave, any last closing thoughts before we wrap up?
1: Let's go bust some silos.
0: <laughs> I guess you've listened to one or two episodes. <laughs> Let's go bust some silos.
2: Hey, all Zach here from Enrollify. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO with Jamie Hunt. If you like this episode, do us a huge favor and hit that follow and subscribe button below. Furthermore, if you've got just two minutes to spare, we would greatly appreciate you leaving a rating and a review of this show on Apple Podcasts.